All right, welcome to the conversation. Uh, we've got a great guest for you guys, old friend, wonderful progressive, uh, former president and CEO of the NAACP. He's also uh, at the Mississippi Jackson Advocate, the executive director of the National Newspaper Publishers Association. That'll be relevant later in the conversation. Uh, and uh, he's, he's ran for governor of Maryland as a, as a Democratic nominee. I, I can go on all day long. It's Ben Jealous. Uh, ben, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. It's good to be yeah. here. So, Ben, um, we, we're going to talk about uh, Biden's VP pick possibility. Progressives are trying to figure out who in the world they should support, uh, given the situation. Yeah. And it's a very, very tough situation. Um, and I and I know that you're backing Stacey Abrams. And that's why I want to talk to you about why you're doing that. And, and it's so important and interesting. But obviously, uh, the events that have happened recently uh, has me starting with George Floyd and what happened in Minneapolis yeah. first. And so, uh, you know, let's start with the event itself before we get to what has happened since then. Um, so, Ben, I, I, I've now been covering this for 18 years. Uh, one African-American man killed after another after another unarmed by police. Uh, and so we never fix it, and people are beginning to lose hope that we're ever going to fix it. So how do you think it can be fixed, and what needs to be done by people in power to fix it? That's a great question. The, um, as Will Smith said, racism isn't new, it's just being filmed. And we have to understand that we're dealing with something that is centuries old, um, it really goes into a deeper tribalism in our psyche. And, and therefore, say this, it's just not new. And yet, it is as urgent as my seven-year-old son who's in the other room. Now, I've been involved in this fight my entire life. I can remember my grandfather, was a black law enforcement officer in Baltimore, talking to me about the terror that he lived with afraid that one of his colleagues might mistake him for a threat because he operated in plain clothes. And the reality is that if we're going to change things, we've got to go deep. When it comes to, to law enforcement, yes, we need all of the body cameras and community policing. We also have to change the way that we train people. In England, where most of the officers do not carry a gun, they are trained every six months on when to escalate force, and most importantly, how to de-escalate situations. In our country, where the standards vary across more than 16,000 different law enforcement agencies, the most common standard is you get trained once in force escalation, one day, like nine to five at the academy, and that's it. And then after that, as they say, it's training day. And you're really trained by a culture that, if we're honest, has its roots in slave patrols. And so we have to, in a decisive way, decide that we're gonna build our police to operate in a way that is appropriate for our democracy, that is appropriate for a country that is rapidly becoming more diverse, and that is frankly appropriate for all of our sense of morality. I mean, I can remember being with Bernie Jenkins, 2016, and wondering if folks in the Ozarks really understood how bad all of this was when we saw all of those men, including in 
Minneapolis. Back then it was uh, Philando Castile killed in our TV streams, killed in our TV screens. And there was a moment when Bernie put out the call for the police to stop killing unarmed black women and unarmed black men. And in the Ozarks, people jumped in their seats, put up their fists and hollered, jumped up on their seats, put up their fists and hollered, support. And like half the men were in deer hunting camouflage. And so this is not really a racial issue. You can go right back to the founding of our country, to the Boston massacre where that Paul Revere painted and painted out Crispus Attucks, the, the first American killed in the Boston massacre, a young black man who abolitionists later painted back in. This, there's been a multiracial fight to end police brutality that's at least as old as the redcoats in this country. And we just need to, to finally win it. And we have to understand that means that we're going to have to change the way that policing is done. We need more officers with college degrees. We need more women. We need more training. We need, quite frankly, uh, to be smarter about training people to de-escalate situations. We need to use violence interrupters more. There's a whole raft of changes. One of the places I think that's done the best job at making incremental progress is New York City where they passed through a raft of these changes about five or six years ago. And the good news is that they saw violence go down for years as a result. And so let us not for a second believe that you have to have abusive cops in order to be safe. You don't. In fact, they actually make all of us less safe. Yeah, violence begets violence. And so, uh, look, I, I love every part of what you just said. I've been saying for I don't know how many years in a row, for God's sake, retrain the police. There's something wrong with the culture. Excessive force is almost taught and uh, by the regular process and unfortunately now woven into the DNA of the culture of, of policing in this country. So that leads me to the next question, which is, Look, I, I get it. The Republicans are never going to do it. Never. I'm not even having that conversation. I think that they actually, guys like Trump, but, you know, now Trump is the Republican Party, um, revel in, I mean, he said it. He said it uh, in a tweet on Thursday night. He said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. That's an old uh, saying from 1967 from a police department in Miami that uh, was known for being uh horribly abusive to African-Americans. And they said that as a way of uh, in celebrating police brutality. And that, and that uh, cop had that reputation, the leader of the cops there down in Miami. You get it. But yeah. I want to talk about the Democrats because, look, I don't want to be unfair. That's why I gave that prelude about, yes, the Republicans are never going to fix this. But when Democrats are in power, uh, as Barack Obama was, um, are they doing enough? Uh, and I don't say that just to look back. I'm talking about going forward. If Biden wins, no matter who his VP is, I I'm not at all convinced that they're going to have the courage to say, no, that's it. We're retraining all the police. The culture is wrong. Um, wh what's your take on whether the Democratic Party has done enough and how we can push them to do more? We absolutely have to build a Democratic Party that listens to and it's led by its youngest members. The reality is that this is the century when we become a democracy truly by necessity, because it will no longer be possible for one group to dominate our politics demographically. Every group will have to get along demographically with at least one other group to succeed democratically. And our young people get this in their bones. And they're 
And on every issue, whether it's healthcare or it's education or it is policing, they have a clear vision for a better future for all of us. And on this issue, quite frankly, too many generations of Democratic politicians have been trained that you can be a liberal on everything except for law enforcement. That if you want to win, this is, the, this is how Feinstein won back in the day, that if you want to win, you got to outright the right on law enforcement. And so we have Democrats who are, quite frankly, too patient with the status quo, want to make up too many excuses and want to act like it's the impatience of the protesters that's the problem rather than the injustice in our justice system. We also have to be clear that in some cases, the laws have to be changed. The Fraternal Order of Police has been very good at whittling away on all kinds of protections for citizens in order to make it harder to prosecute bad cops. Let me be clear. I come from a law enforcement family. I have law enforcement family members who picked up a gun, a gun and a badge and went to work today. They do great work. They are heroes. They risk their lives every day. No one endangers their lives more than members of law enforcement who are themselves corrupt, abusive, and violent. And so we have to, to be clear that everybody has an interest in cleaning things up. It starts, unfortunately, uh, with, you know, with, with, with Democratic politicians having courage. And as you and I both know, there's too many of us who have courage on everything except for taking on law enforcement. Yeah. So now you mentioned the, the reaction and uh, we're talking on Friday. This will air a couple of days later. But uh, we we had peaceful protests. Then we had police firing rubber bullets and tear gas. Uh, and then, yes, there were there were definitely fires and some uh, uh, looting. And, and they took over the third precinct uh, police station and and that was lit on fire. So, of course, the reaction of the right wing is, we knew it, look at these African-Americans doing the writing, it's their fault. Um, my reaction is, well, if you give, violence is basically a politics of last resort. Uh, and, and I've said a million times on the show, we should never go there. It's never going to work out for us. The right wing will always out-violence us, and it's immoral, and I can go on and on. But... Um, to me, the people that are responsible are the ones that never fixed the system in the first place, yeah. making this inevitable. I wanted to know what your take was. Well, look, Trump came out and tried to pin this all on the mayor of Minneapolis, which is outrageous. The best way to control a situation like this would have been to charge the cops in the only jurisdiction. There is no way of doing that as the city. The county has a major role to play. The state can play a role, too. The federal government absolutely can bring charges. No one has faith that Donald Trump's Justice Department will do that. It was even hard, quite frankly, and there were frustrations when Obama was in office about not bringing federal charges against George Zimmerman. And so we have to understand that in this moment, it really takes leadership and the, and the, and the, and the strongest places for leadership in, in this type of situation will be the county prosecutor's office and the U.S. Department of Justice. Trump has short-circuited the U.S. Department of Justice. That means it will all pretty much fall in that county prosecutor's office. And they need to bring charges. They cannot, you know, I'm from Baltimore. They try to say, oh, look at Freddie Gray. With all due respect, Freddie Gray was killed in a van. There was no videotape. This man was killed on the street. There was plenty of videotape. 
this is a much easier case to bring, and it's urgent that it be brought. Yeah. Uh, w- one last thing on this. I, I know I mentioned your journalism background before, and uh, you're now a visiting scholar at the Annenberg School at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, but you also were involved in an app, uh, Citizens Act, uh, that actually could be very relevant in, in protests like this. So w- what is that, Ben? Sure. So the Citizen App is an app that's active now in about 20 cities, including the Twin Cities. We were built in New York City, where a quarter of the folks have you know, a quarter of the people in the city have downloaded the app. And what we do is we allow you, if you're within a few hundred feet of an incident that's been reported on 911, to live stream what you're seeing. And so folks want to see what's happening from the, from the eyes of the protesters and people who are in the crowds. You can simply go to the Citizen app and uh, download it and then just flip over to what's happening in uh, Minneapolis and see what's happening right now. One of the reasons why we brought the app to Minneapolis, and, and to back up, what it, the main function is it sends real-time 911 notifications to your phone, and then it allows you to, again, to document what, what you're seeing if you're on the scene. One of the reasons we brought it was to empower people in situations involving the police to monitor what the officers are doing. The app has lots of other values. It notifies you when there's a fire or a missing person, or there's been shot fires fired in your neighborhood, but, but we have seen officers change their behavior when somebody's holding up their camera and says to them, officer, I just want to let you know that 250 people in the neighborhood are watching you right now. Mm-hmm. And we literally have seen officers change their behavior 180 degrees uh, when it's clear that they're being recorded and quite frankly, not on a device that they could just take from the person. Because if you record it on our platform, it's all on our platform. Yeah, no, I love that. That's uh, citizen journalism, and uh, we obviously we celebrate that here. All right, uh, now let's move on to uh, the current day politics. Uh, so, Vice President uh, Joe Biden is now the Democratic nominee, and he's got to pick his own vice president. Uh, so, uh, the top contenders appear to be uh, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, uh, and Amy Klobuchar and Gretchen Whitmer. And there's others, but those are. Those are the five that are most often mentioned. Given what's happened in Minnesota and the prosecutorial history of Klobuchar, I don't know if she's still in the top five, but um, people often talk about how he has to pick a African-American female VP. Uh, But that seems to wash away the differences between Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams as if they're the same person. (laughs) Obviously, they are not. So you're backing Stacey Abrams. Why is that? Well, let me just acknowledge it was it, that was a tough choice. And the first three women that you mentioned, any of them, I think, would be a great vice president. I don't know the other two so well, and I do have con- concerns about uh, Klobuchar and her history in her state. Stacy, to me, is a unique person in my life and a unique person in this country. I've noticed since we were 20-year-old organizers taking on the governor of Mississippi, who was trying to turn a black college into a prison along with Derek Johnson, who runs the NAACP nationally now, and we beat him. And Stacey comes from a family, a civil rights family. Her father was was a leader in Hattiesburg when he was a teenager, when that city was right at the kind of crosshairs and the crossroads of the future of the civil rights movement. And And he raised Stacey to be just as, just as courageous. 
And I saw her do things when I was president of the NAACP, and she was the first woman to ever lead a legislature in Georgia. And she was in her early 30s. I saw Stacey do things that were incredible, considering that the Republicans uh, had control of the government. I saw her uh, create consensus to save the union when other leading Democrats had betrayed the union that represents the bus drivers in Atlanta and the subway operators. She actually built by bipartisan consensus to save them. I saw her work with the Republican governor to push through at the time the most sweeping state level criminal justice reforms that we have ever seen. And I have seen Stacey again and again with humility and compassion take the concerns of working people and deliver real results. All of this in Georgia. And so we need somebody when this country is so fractured who knows how to reach across the aisle and pull folks towards us to win major progressive victories. We're fools if we think as progressives that we can get everything we want done by ourselves. Those of us, like me and Stacy, have worked on criminal justice reform for the last quarter century or more of our life, know that we can work to get sweeping criminal justice reform done because we've done it together at the state level. And we've done it with Republicans who we disagree with on 99 things, but found the one thing we could agree on, which was that our prison systems were too big and our prisons are destroying families. They understand it often because they're involved in right-wing ministries that are operating behind bars, and they know the human damage just like the NAACP knows the human damage of over-incarceration. And so that's, that's Stacey. Stacey's an incredible bridge builder who has, won, who has won real progressive reforms in Georgia, in the Georgia legislature with a Republican governor, precisely because she is a courageous organizer who was who grew up in the civil rights movement. So I hear from some progressives that they're worried about uh, Stacey Abrams precisely because of those things. They say uh, she's uh, perhaps a secret moderate because uh, of her history of being able to work with Republicans and, and get legislation that at the end of the day was not as progressive as people would have liked. How do you answer that, Ben? There were there were always folks in the North who thought that Martin Luther King was too moderate and that he should have adopted the rhetoric of Malcolm X. The reality is, is Martin Luther King was in Georgia and Malcolm X was in Harlem. And those are universes apart. Stacy is absolutely committed to 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 changing people's lives for the better in real time because she comes from the very uh, communities. Stacy grew up in places like Wiggins, Mississippi. Most folks, most progressives I know haven't been to Mississippi, let alone to Wiggins. Um, but she grew up right on the front lines of poverty in this country. And so uh, like Martin Luther King before her, she operates in a way that is distinctly Southern. And like Martin Luther King before her, she is absolutely rooted in serving poor people. And like Martin Luther King before her, the change she would bring to our country would be tremendous. We have to... Uh, as progressives learn to appreciate the geographic differences of, of this country and the different uh, sort of rhetoric and manner of, of behavior that we have to take on when we're operating in a place like Georgia, 
and, you know, not in, say, uh, New York City. Now, the establishment critique I see of uh, Stacey is that, well, she's untested. We, we don't know her well enough. It's too much of a wild card uh, to, to pick someone that the nation doesn't know well enough and that hasn't served in a big enough office. Well, what's your take on that, Ben? That critique of Stacey from the right in the Democratic Party, where they say, you know, oh, she's untested, strikes me as somewhere, sorry, I'm a little bit beyond words because it frustrates me. I think it's steeped in uh, discrimination. How can you sit there and discount the only woman in the history of the country to pull together a coalition and lead a party in the Georgia legislature? How can you discount a leader, a Democrat, who got as much done as she did? And how can you pretend, like, frankly, President Obama had he began running for president the day he became senator. And I don't think he even finished his first term. And what Stacey did and has done in her state legislature is at least as significant as what he did in his. Now, we've seen great leaders come rise up from state legislatures to lead in the White House going way back. Stacey is right in that mold. She is brilliant, and we would be lucky to have her as vice president. We'd be lucky to have her as president. All right. Uh, so one last thing here as we're short on time. Uh, I want to call out what you recently did in Baltimore. Um, you raised a million dollars for people uh, that it, that are dealing with coronavirus in Baltimore right now. Uh, how did you do that and, and where does it go? Well, thanks. So this is to honor my grandparents, Jerome and M Mamie Todd. It was inspired by the uh, Unite Here Union, the hospital, excuse me. It was inspired by the Unite Here Union, whose leader in Baltimore called and told me that in two weeks, 90% of her members would be laid off. My grandfather supported our family, his, his, his daughter, my mom, his wife, my grandmother, as a unionized dishwasher. And I thought for one second, what might have happened to our family if he had lost that job? and I, you know, honestly, there was a lot of good that may not have ever occurred. So I sent out a note to friends, and we celebrated checks coming in that were as small as $3, $2.50. And then the checks just got bigger and bigger and bigger and kind of went through the roof. And all of a sudden, we had hoped to raise $10,000. We ended up raising over $1 million. We're giving that money to Black churches, to Casa de Maryland, which serves the undocumented, uh, and to... Uh, re relief funds for union workers who find themselves out of work and to help school children get computers. It's just a tremendous act of grace. And it reminds us that in these tough times, all of us are wise to remember the grace that's been shown to our families in tough times and to pay it forward by showing grace to others. Wow, that's amazing. So in the description box below, if you're watching this later on the big platforms, YouTube, Facebook, we'll put the links to all the things that, that Ben mentioned in case you want to participate as well. Uh, Benjamin Jealous, former head of the NAACP, current visiting scholar at Penn. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Always, always, uh, always a real pleasure to be here. Thank you.